Thanks for tuning in to this podcast on KPOV.org. The following conversation with Ranger Randy and Jefferson Jacobs, Riparian Restoration Coordinator for the Oregon Natural Desert Association, aired on February 4th, 2019. It was on the Sasquatch Hideaway on KPOV Radio, 88.9 FM, Bend, Oregon. Jefferson talks about his work with ONDA, their goals, and how volunteers make a huge difference in riparian restoration. This is Jefferson Jacobs with uh, Oregon Natural Desert Association. And what is it you do, and what does your organization do? Well, ONDA is a organization that's been around since the 80s. We're in our, our fourth decade now, and it was founded originally in part to help protect the Badlands, which is now designated as wilderness, but quickly expanded to do other things, got involved with conservation at Harp Mountain and such. ONDA's mission is to protect, defend, and restore Eastern Oregon's high desert for current and future generations. Basically, public, private lands, anywhere there's sage grouse, that's where we work. My role in particular is using volunteers to help restore the riparian areas in, uh, in Eastern Oregon on private and public lands. That's interesting. So uh, riparian areas uh, restoration, is this because of a grazing or, or what, what is it that causes that need to be repaired? Just first off, the riparian areas are areas around streams, flowing water, rivers. They're few and far between. And so they're really disproportionately important to wildlife and agriculture, basically everything that's going on in eastern Oregon. So for them to contribute to all those needs, they need to be functioning properly. And they they are degraded. Um, there's a lot of incised streams, so streams that are eroded and cut down and are 20 feet below the surrounding landscape, so cut off from their floodplains, or they're missing a lot of their vegetation component, so they can't support the wildlife or, or even uh, the agriculture that, that might depend on them. Uh, there's a lot of landscape changes that have definitely happened where there's less water flowing in creeks throughout the year. So they're they're not doing what we need them to do. They're, in general, water's hotter than it should be, and they're drier than it should be. And luckily, there's a, a, a lot of things that we can do with volunteer labor to fix that, help them get back on their way. Okay, such as? Such as, um, there's a great study done, a 10-year study in the middle uh, fork of the John Day, where they looked at, okay, if we're concerned about fish, what is the best thing that we can do to help fish habitat, fish populations, for example? There's protected species of fish up there. What they found is the best thing that you can do is restore the vegetation that is normally found around creek or river in, in eastern Oregon. So planting willows and cottonwoods and golden current and all these different shrubs and trees and restoring the, the sedge component that when that becomes a mature community of plants, then it cools the water, it supports beaver, which can dam up the water and help kind of make floods less of a big deal and help spread the flow of water out over throughout the whole season rather than just in little bursts when it's either a rainstorm or snow melt or whatever. Not only can those help ameliorate those problems, but they 
directly ameliorate the problems that are related to global climate change, which are increased temperatures, decreased flows in streams, and, and that sort of thing. It's pretty exciting to see just by planting trees, <laughs> we can uh, fight climate change and get these creeks back to where they're uh, providing the, the resources that we're interested in. So do we know what caused the degradation in the first place? Well, land management uses. Things actually started in the early 1800s, before pioneers were even here. That's when the Hudson's Bay Company was in its big heyday based out of Canada. But Oregon itself was contested territory. It was contested between England, Spain, Russia, the United States. And basically what they said is, well, we're just not going to decide who really owns Oregon for now. It's just this no man's land. Time of Lewis and Clark and all that, and just this expansion west. The Hudson's Bay Company saw the writing on the wall, and they said, oh my gosh, these pesky Americans are going to move west and then move up into these awesome beaver trapping grounds that we have in British Columbia and Canada and, and all. And that's going to be problematic because beaver pelts were worth more than gold. They had a scorched earth policy. They called it their fur desert policy. And they intentionally went out and annihilated the populations of the beaver in pretty much the entire Columbia River Basin. What they hoped was that trappers would say basically, oh, it's not even worth going up in there, let alone crossing it into Canada. And that would hold off the Americans. Well, it didn't really hold off the Americans, but it did do a great job at obliterating beaver populations. And we're still recovering from that to this day. What happened then is that when the beaver were obliterated, those whole huge ecosystems uh, that the beaver had maintained was starting to fail just as the pioneers came in. And what the pioneers found were all these great bottomlands with silt and vegetation growing and great places to grow hay and grass and farm and everything like that. And so they came in, moved creeks around to make farming easier, cut down trees that were in the way or used them because at that time there weren't so many juniper either. Creeks started to incise. Uh, animals were eating the willow, eating cottonwood. And what happens is that made this downward spiral was really hard to re recover from. So that initial kind of combination events in concert where there was a series of, of really dry years and really wet years that would kind of kill off vegetation and then flood things out and then kill things off really helped set the stage for where things are now and continued use of the landscape is uh, not giving it a chance to recover in a lot of places. To say you do work on private and public lands, do you have to be invited into a private land or how does oh, that yeah. work? <laughs> yeah, and those relationships are highly valuable and, and unique because water is such a rare resource on the landscape. When people came in and, and made land claims, they made land claims where the water was. So a lot of areas where there's water is private land. So if you want to work with water, you have to work on private land. And so we do actually get invitations to come and restore areas from private landowners, some active ranching areas and some areas that are individuals that have bought land for conservation and have it in easements. Usually we come in with our own funding, our own labor. We collaborate with the owner and make recommendations of what can be done and and then we do it. I think there might be a misconception of the impact that volunteers could have uh, in doing this kind of work because 
you know, it's a bunch of retirees and school kids and people taking days off from work and everything. And what we found is that people doing this work care so much about what they're doing. They do a fantastic job and our success rates with our restoration projects are really high. It's a very effective way to get work done. When you work on public lands, I mm-hmm. assume you have to work with the agencies that own that land, whether it be BLM, forest, or whatever? That's correct as well. And just as important with private lands, it's it's an invitation from the agencies for us to come and work with them. It's really a personal relationship that you build with whoever you're working with, because part of the mission of ONDA is protect, defend, and restore. And sometimes that involves lawsuits against agencies. And we may be doing restoration work at the very same time we're in litigation with that same agency, that same bureau or office, making a strong personal relationship and connection with someone there that basically has to stick their neck out to work with us is really important. I I think a lot of the land managers understand and, and see the value to both approaches. They're not frivolous lawsuits that we engage in. And the work that we do with agencies helps them check off so many boxes that they're responsible for and are are on the hook for, for management of the landscape. But they don't have the people to do the work or the you know the financial backing to do the work so they're looking for help and we're happy to to help out accomplish those those things can you give me an example of what might bring on a lawsuit in general onda looks at what an, an agency is supposed to do on paper then looks at their actions on the ground and see if sees if those two things mesh and so it's it's very much not a philosophical battle such as well these are what the rules are and this is what you're doing. And if they're not following the rules, then we take them to court. And Honda has a really successful legal team and has a really high success rate. So it's it's not like obstructionist lawsuits or pesky lawsuits. It's you say you're going to manage the land this way. That's definably not true. Uh, a lot of our lawsuits involve uh, support for wilderness and the management of wilderness. Wilderness with a big W, so congressional designation wilderness, supporting things like what the management plans are for those wilderness areas. It's kind of sounds like you're an oversight. Yeah, definitely a watchdog group. Our membership continues to grow. It's between four and 5,000 members and terms of general supporters and such, it's, I think, in the 10,000 range. Um, so we, we actually have a lot of eyes and ears all over eastern Oregon, and they come back and say, hey, did you know this is going on out there? And so then we go and take a look and, yeah, can really help take a look at things. Having said that, it's not that kind of watchdog group kind of thing. A lot of times people think of it as an adversarial relationship and with some districts or or such it may still be that way but we have formal agreements with for example the Prineville district of BLM and some others when we see something unusual out there that's that's not right it lets us have a like a conversation rather than just jump to a a lawsuit that's better for everybody to say hey you know just want to let you know and then more often than not they just go and fix it Boy, wouldn't it be great if we could do that with more things? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Congress would be a good place to start. (laughs) Right. It sure is a lot more efficient rather than fighting. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. 
Can you give me some examples of some of the work you've done recently? Yeah. So, and this is definitely the stuff I, I like to talk about because I'm so proud of my volunteers and the work that they accomplish. These are people that, um, like I said, are retirees or people just taking time off from work. Everybody may not have the same accomplishments during the day, but everybody works as hard as they can. And I always joke if there was a little gauge stuck into the back of their head of their effort, everybody would be up to 10 all the time. We just had a trip, our last multi-day trip of the, the season. We usually have 30 to 40 uh, four-day-long trips a year. People camp out and you arrive one day, you work two days, and then you go home on the, the fourth day. This last one was up east of Prairie City on the Malheur National Forest, working with great cooperators there, Jeff Nelson, Joe Jordan, Hazel Owens, all with the, the National Forest there. Our third year working on uh, Wewanite Creek. Wewanite's a uh, Native American phrase referring to numerous springs coming out of the ground. It's steelhead stream. In two days of work, we planted over 300 plants, put 2,000 sticks into the ground. Basically, if you take a willow or a cottonwood stick and and make a hole and put it in the ground, it grows into a willow or cottonwood. It's magical. Did 2,000 of those. We built 39 exclosures around plants to protect them from browsing and built these neat in-stream structures called baffles that change water flow, make the creek more sinuous and basically not just kind of flush out immediately in spring flows. It, it holds the water on the land longer. All the volunteers show up no experience needed and they learn how to plant or build exclosures and do that for eight to sometimes 10 hours a day just taking their time pacing themselves but it's beautiful country and uh, you get to sit and look up at the the tamaracks changing color and all that while you're working and have great conversation and do that for two days and and go home take me through the process Mm -hmm. You obviously, you get your volunteers, they, do you travel out in caravan? Or is there a bus provided? Uh, who provides the meals, the lodging? Yeah, so. it's kind of a, a unique way to organize things in that, you know, we don't want price or logistics or anything like that to be a barrier to people. In general, you provide your own food and camping gear kind of thing. And that way, you know, you can eat ramen if you want to or caviar if you want to, whatever your your wallet can sustain. And then we'll carpool out as much as necessary. But people come from all over the state. So our our membership and, and engagement and volunteer trips kind of fits the, the overall population distribution. So there's a lot of people come from west side of the Cascades, but from Bend and and points further east, Prineville and Burns and and that sort of thing that will come on trips. So offices are here in Bend, but we don't just drive from Bend. So we'll carpool out and basically in the evenings we give kind of educational talks and work from eight to four and sometimes do explorations around in the evening or check out the the previous areas that we've worked. If you can't show up for the full four days, you can just come out and meet us for a day. It's pretty free-flowing. While I lead riparian restoration trips, we have other trip leaders that work on the Oregon Desert Trail, which is several hundred miles long and crosses 
Eastern Oregon. We have folks that are more on the conservation side of things that take volunteers out and they'll help inventory potential wilderness to report back to the BLM of whether or not it qualifies for wilderness designation or not. And then we help advocate for that with bills in Congress. So it can be all sorts of different things that you do. We have a calendar of trips that opens up February 25th, and it'll show all the trips for the entire year. In addition to that, we often have kind of last minute little volunteer opportunities, but trips and work and volunteer opportunities start as early as early February, and we'll go out and we'll harvest sticks at the nursery out in Clarno. Um, then we put them in a cooler and then they're ready for planting later. Those are usually day trips and they continue right up through, actually have day trips on the Deschutes River in early December. So it's pretty much a year round thing, but that opens up February 25th. We have a minimal deposit that you put forth when you register, but it's refundable. So there's no financial obligation to come on a trip, so it's affordable. In addition to that, we have our annual party called the Hootenanny. I think that's at Worthy Brewery, which is a great continuing sponsor of Onda. I really appreciate their support. Check out onda.org and uh, have any questions or, or interests, uh, shoot me an email. Uh, jjacobs, J-A-C-O-B-S at O-N-D-A dot O-R-G. And uh, that's where they can also find any information, register for any of these trips is at onda.org. Onda.org, yep. You can see links to all our past trips. We've got a great blog that volunteers write about their experiences or um, photographers for our calendar. You may have seen the Onda calendar around town write on and uh, news updates and, and all of that. Great. Well, thank you. Jefferson Jacobs with uh, ONDA, and uh, appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this podcast on KPOV, your high desert community radio station. Go to kpov.org for more information and our program schedule. We value your feedback, so please send any comments or suggestions to podcast at kpov.org.